Can I get coronavirus and influenza at the same time? The answer to this question appears to be yes. There have been a few studies on this now. Uh, uh, one large study actually looked at patients who with known coronavirus and also examined their respiratory specimens to see if they had another respiratory virus. And 25% of the time, roughly, they did. This is yet another reason to make sure you get your flu vaccine this year. This notion that you're at increased risk of heart attacks and strokes during the month after you've recovered from acute influenza, that information has been gathered over the last 10 years. I didn't learn that because it wasn't known when I went to medical school, but we're teaching it now and we're learning more and more about the long-term effects of inflammation post-flu and post-COVID. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Phyllis Arthur, Vice President of Infectious Disease Policy at Bio. I'm filling in for Dr. Michelle this week, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Flu season is right around the corner, and many public health experts are worried. With the coronavirus also looming and super spreaders still refusing to mask up in many communities, some medical professionals fear this could be one of the worst flu seasons in memory. Except, of course, those who think it could be one of the mildest ever. With so many Americans hunkered down at home and avoiding medical settings, there is concern that people won't take their flu shot. Immunization rates have fallen this year as many Americans avoid public places and healthcare settings in particular. What if our country's growing vaccine hesitancy leads more people to forgo this important protection? What if adults used to getting their flu shot at work fail to make other arrangements as they work from home? There's also the concern that a spike in both flu and COVID cases could overwhelm hospitals with respiratory infections of mysterious and unknown origin. COVID and flu present similarly, and we've heard all the stories of COVID test results being slow to come back in some states. Finally, there's the terrifying idea of co-infection, getting both the influenza virus and the coronavirus this fall or winter. Then again, maybe this reading misses the mark altogether. The optimists point out that a bad flu season is really a product of lots of human contact and poor hygiene. They note that more Americans are wearing masks and keeping their distance than in years past. While some kids have returned to school, many are hunkered down at home. This could slow flu transmission compared to normal years. Finally, the optimists point out that Australia's flu season, which occurred during our spring and summer, produced just 100 cases compared to 60,000 in 2019. Then again, Australia's response to COVID has been far more robust than our own. The truth is, no one knows how bad the flu season will be this year, because the jury is still out on how Americans will behave. Some officials are looking at the flu shot uptake as an indicator of how many Americans will take a COVID vaccine when it's ready. So this is a lot to chew on. So we've invited a very special guest a trusted doctor, an infectious disease expert, and a fixture on cable news, 
to talk us through all things flu in the age of COVID. I'm really delighted today to have Dr. William Schaffner as our guest. Dr. Schaffner is a professor at Vanderbilt School of Medicine specializing in infectious diseases and health policy. He's also the current chief medical director for the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases and the past president of that same organization. In addition, he holds a prominent position within the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices uh, Advisory Groups. It's too bad that you can't see Dr. Schaffner because you've definitely seen him before on television, on CNN. He's very committed to the science. He's very committed to public health. He's very committed to vaccines. Then he has a way of explaining things that I think you all will find very approachable and very understandable. So, Bill, welcome to I Am Bio. Oh, thank you, Phyllis. You're very, very kind, and it's good to be with you. And we're talking about something that's close to both of our hearts, right? <laughs> Influenza vaccination. <laughs> Absolutely. We're talking about flu today. And um, we are in really at the start of flu season. Um, there, there are signs up in, in the various pharmacies. Uh, people are talking about flu. You're seeing it on TV. There's going to be the big event, the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases press conference next month. We're in a unique situation where we're facing flu season, one respiratory disease in the middle of a respiratory disease pandemic. So it's very important that we think about flu in the context of our current situation this fall. So let me start off with my first question to you. Regardless of COVID, why are we always focused on getting people vaccinated for flu during flu season? Uh, Phyllis, flu shows up our old friend, or should I say old enemy, on an annual basis, right? It comes along toward the end of the fall and through the winter and makes many, many people sick. It is the dominant respiratory infection that occurs in some seasons, It can make up to 20% of the population ill. That's a really bad flu season. And of course, it can put many, many people into the hospital, hundreds of thousands of them. We're sort of used to it. We refer to it casually as the flu. If we spoke about it in its full name, its proper name, influenza, perhaps we'd give it some more respect. But it's serious and depending upon the seriousness of the flu season, somewhere between a few thousand to over 80,000 persons are killed by influenza each and every year. It's an enormous impact on our society on an annual basis. So Bill, what's interesting is you look back at flu seasons in the past you had some years where, in, in, in addition to those who were elderly, immunocompromised, and with con- underlying conditions having bad outcomes from flu, you had years where children and pregnant women had very bad uh, seasons with flu as well. And that's a slightly different population than we're seeing with COVID. Can you talk about why some years flu has a really bad effect on children and pregnant women? Ah, so this is flu 102. (laughs) Uh, We'll introduce the concept that there are many influenza viral strains and different strains are dominant in different years. That's one of the reasons we have to get vaccinated each year because we have to update the vaccine. And some strains particularly seek out the very young or even we've had occasions where middle-aged adults were affected more than older persons. But in general, if we had to generalize, 
older persons are more at risk. They account for often 80% of the deaths that occur secondary to influenza. Can you talk about the the effectiveness of the vaccines we have today and how do you explain it to people so they understand how they should think about the numbers they're hearing? The influenza vaccine actually protects us now this year against four different strains of influenza. In other words, it's a protective shotgun. So we're not putting all of our proverbial eggs in one basket. (laughs) We're protecting against a variety of strains at the same time. So its effectiveness varies according to the person who's getting vaccinated. If you're young and strong and you have a robust immune system that responds optimally to the vaccine, you can have vaccine protection rates, effectiveness rates, that are well above 50, 60, 70 percent. Paradoxically, if you're older, if you're frail, your body's immune system also is not as effective and our response to the vaccine is not as robust. So we will have effectiveness rates that can range around 40 or 50 percent, for example. Now, before we conclude that that's a mediocre protection rate, let's remember I'm going to take a cue from that old French philosopher Voltaire, (laughs) who reminded us waiting for perfection is the great enemy of the current good. We have a good vaccine that can do a lot of good. It prevents many infections. And then, and this is underappreciated, suppose you get the vaccine and nonetheless, let's say a month later, you get influenza. You're grumbling. However, I can assure you that your infection was milder. It was less severe than had you not received the flu. Year in and year out, the studies show that vaccination prevents hospitalization, having to go to the intensive care unit, and dying. And as I say, what's wrong with that? The CDC has said now for well over a decade, if you're older than six months of age, you should get vaccinated each and every year. So let's talk about this, a season that, that is a model for maybe what we can expect this year in the U.S. Um, in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, they, they have their flu season kind of at the opposite of us over that March to June time frame. And what they saw was people were eager to get the flu vaccine. They understood why it was important to do that in light of the pandemic that was happening. Um, so we had more uptake of the vaccine, even in the presence of social distancing and hand washing and all the mitigating factors being done for COVID prevention. And they had 61,000 cases, for example, last year during their flu season. And this year they had a very small number, barely over 100. How do we look at the Southern Hemisphere's flu season with, with the pandemic and think about how what we can learn from that for our season as we prepare for it? Here's my crystal ball. I'll polish it up and look and see what our future flu season is going to be like. Actually, Uh, not being facetious. Number one, I predict with great assurance that we will have a flu season. That's for sure. Second, I will say also with great assurance that what we do as persons across the United States will help determine how serious this influenza season is. 
I'm going to key on what you said about Australia. Australia had a strikingly low influenza season during our summer, their winter, as everybody will remember. Now, why was that? Well, my Australian friends attribute this to two things. The first is they used, they administered more influenza vaccine in their population than they ever had before. So they used a lot of flu vaccine. And then they were not perfectly, but quite reasonably compliant with all the social distancing, wearing the masks, staying six feet away, not going to large group gatherings. Both of those things combined, my Australian friends tell me, really conspired to drive influenza way down. A wonderful result. I hope we can mirror that here in the United States this coming season. Excellent. So as we prepare for this season for flu, I think that there's there's a little bit of different messaging going on for why it's so important to get the flu vaccine. We always talk every year about the importance of preventing uh, illness, uh, preventing loss of work, uh, preventing hospitalizations and death, et cetera as you did at the opening of the podcast. But in the year of COVID, I think there's actually other messaging that we're making sure people understand about why it's so important to avoid the flu while we are trying to um, maximize the space for the healthcare system for COVID. No one wants to be a dreaded spreader, right? Who gives the flu virus to others around them who then become very, very ill. Nobody wants that. Now, in addition to all those good reasons, we're going to face COVID this winter, a double-barreled respiratory virus season, and those two infections look very much alike. One of the things that's of an additional benefit if we all get vaccinated against influenza, that will take a substantial strain off the healthcare system, which already will be coping in overdrive with COVID. And if we can do that, we'll make it easier for all of us, all of the doctors, the clinics, the hospitals, the intensive care units, if we take that normal flu load out of the healthcare system by being vaccinated. How do we help to make people feel that it's safe to go to a healthcare provider, pharmacy, doctor, clinic, whatever, to get the vaccine? How, how do we make people feel like they can do this and not come out with COVID? Yep. So here we are urging everyone to get vaccinated. They've been doing telemedicine. And as I like to quip, I haven't figured out yet how to vaccinate anyone through the computer. That doesn't work so well. So we have to persuade them to actually show up at a healthcare provider, a clinic, a doctor's office, a senior citizen center, the pharmacy, wherever influenza vaccine is being given. And we have to persuade them that they can go in safely and that the healthcare system can vaccinate them wherever they are very quickly, safely, and let them get out very efficiently with a minimum contact with the healthcare system. In many private physicians' offices and clinics, call in advance and find out if they're doing this. They're 
actually holding either at the beginning or at the end of the day flu clinics. So you can literally just bop in, roll up your sleeve, get vaccinated, smile, and jog right out again. Smile behind your mask, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Smile with your eyes. <laughs> Absolutely. Smile with your eyes. Exactly. Some physicians, I understand, are actually having their nurses run out to the car and vaccinate people in the car so the people can keep their masks on, roll down their window, put their arms out, get vaccinated, and they don't even have to enter the doctor's office. Uh, I don't know how common that will be, but it's an interesting and I think actually very innovative thought to try to help people get in and out. Let's go back to some of the science. How do we explain to people, how would you explain to people the difference, how contagious is flu versus COVID, and how can people tell whether they have one or the other, or can they tell if they have one or the other? I think in general, the data seem to indicate that COVID is even more contagious than influenza and may be associated with a higher mortality rate. So COVID, influenza is bad and COVID is bad, bad. But in any event, I think trying to prevent both of them is very important. And fortunately, all that social distancing, mask wearing, et cetera, will help prevent both. The, the other issue was to a clinician, there's going to be a lot of head scratching this winter, I'm afraid, because the two infections can really resemble each other. And there will be a greater desire to test and try to distinguish these viruses. The more we can vaccinate ourselves and eliminate or profoundly reduce half of that equation, get as much of that flu off the table, the easier it will be for all of us we clinicians to take care of patients. As we were preparing for this podcast, I was thinking about the only side of the only symptom that I can think of that's uniquely different for COVID is this loss of smell um, issue that people are talking about. The clinical presentation for the average person and the average doctor just seeing the patient clinically, I think will be very, very difficult. I think doctors will be making judgments on the basis of how widespread is COVID in the community and are we, are we in the middle of a community-wide influenza outbreak? That will change the equation about how they think of things. Obviously, it's flu season, and we want people to go get their flu shots. But in addition, this is a great opportunity to catch up adults on their other immunizations they should get. So when you're standing there, should you get your shingles? Should you get your pneumonia shot? Well, I love that idea, of course, because we know that during the lockdown period, the shutdown period, immunizations of children for sure, but certainly also of adults, diminished. And so we're going to have to catch up and get people immunized so that we can offer that vaccine-associated protection to as many people as possible. So this is an opportunity for you to have your immunization record reviewed by your healthcare provider and you've got two arms, this may be an opportunity for you to roll up one arm and get your flu shot and the other arm, get your pneumococcal vaccine, the pneumonia vaccine, or shingles vaccine, or Tdap, 
tetanus, diphtheria, acellular pertussis, vaccine, whichever you're deficient in, and, you know, as it were, kill two birds with one stone. Some people are calling this flu season a practice run for COVID-19 vaccinations. What are your thoughts and the thoughts of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases on how we make sure we have a successful flu season in preparation for COVID-19 vaccines? Well, I think this is an opportunity for us to reinforce the importance of vaccination. COVID vaccine will require a great deal of education, and we're not entirely sure yet how that vaccine will be distributed. We know that there will be a prioritization. That is, some people will get requested to be first in line, second, third. We'll all have to listen very carefully when it's our turn to get the vaccine. This is the COVID vaccine and where to go to get it. It'll be very important. But getting people into the healthcare provider, getting them with flu vaccine will be, in a sense, a rehearsal and an acquaintanceship so that we can get ready for COVID vaccine when, and I hope it is when rather than if, when COVID vaccine or vaccines become available. When we look at the immunization rates across different populations and communities of color for flu, we see that while we hit a certain level of vaccination across the varying age groups, we don't have that same vaccination rate across different communities of color who may be more at risk for both flu and COVID. How should we be helping communities of color understand the importance of vaccinating against flu uh, before we even start to talk about the COVID vaccines? Boy, I think that that is so important. I'm glad you brought it up because in adult immunizations generally and flu among them, there are differences, disparities. So African-Americans, people, Hispanic, people of lower socioeconomic status, there are different ways to look at it, but those folks take less advantage of being immunized than do people who are better socioeconomically and who are Caucasian. So we need to reach out to those populations. We haven't done so completely successfully in the past because those disparities exist and we have to make more efforts. I think we need to listen to people in those communities and find out why it is they're reluctant or don't have access to the vaccines and absolutely respond to that. We want everyone in the country to take advantage of the protection afforded by vaccines. Benjamin Franklin said it best, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. Let's prevent more. So there's a lot of data that shows the the way that having flu infection can exacerbate underlying chronic conditions and even make them worse. Can you talk a bit about how people should understand the importance of preventing flu when you have an underlying condition? It's terribly important because people with underlying medical conditions, and this accelerates with advancing age, are at increased risk of the more severe episodes of influenza and the complications of pneumonia and other things that can put you into the hospital. And the risk of dying increases if you have chronic conditions. What I'm concerned about is that both physicians and patients 
haven't integrated the concept of annual influenza vaccination into their means of managing their chronic conditions. So everyone with diabetes should think part of my diabetes management every autumn is to get vaccinated against influenza. Absolutely. Anybody with heart disease should think about that. And the other side of that coin is, for example, every patient with heart disease should be vaccinated. So from the cardiologist's point of view, every patient that walks into their office is a candidate, a special candidate for influenza vaccination they should integrate influenza vaccine into their practice. If they don't administer it themselves, and specialists may not, they should make a very strong recommendation about influenza vaccine to their patients. It's part of how we're managing your cardiac condition. The National Foundation for Infectious Diseases actually has done a couple of surveys and asked patients whether they had been recommended for influenza vaccine. You know, their recollection of the recommendation is much lower than the doctor's recollection of the recommendation. And here's why. Here's a little scenario. Phyllis, you're my patient, and we come to the end of the visit. It's in September. And as we're leaving, I say to you, and Phyllis, it's that time of the year. You ought to think about getting your flu vaccine. Excuse me? Think about getting your flu vaccine? The doctor thinks they've recommended it. That's not a recommendation. That's an option for you to leave the office unimmunized. Better to say, Phyllis, it's that time of the year. When you leave, you'll get your flu vaccine. And make that a routine part of your practice. Now, if you look at me and say, well, doctor, well, Doctor, I've, 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 I don't get flu, so I don't need influenza vaccine. The first thing I always say to the patient, and I look at them with surprise, Phyllis, you're not interested in flu vaccine? I'm vaccinated against influenza. Everyone in my family's vaccinated. Look around the office. You won't see anyone who works here who's not vaccinated. And you know, all the doctors in our practice, we have taken a vow to vaccinate absolutely everybody who's in our practice because we want you to have maximum protection against influenza. Never mind the recommendation. Let's get, you don't say to your patient, you know, Phyllis, you have diabetes. You ought to think about getting that treated. Really? Come on now. So there's been some data to show that after people recover from flu, there's long-term consequences. Over the last 10 years, we've learned more and more about this. I'll tell you that most doctors, when I give medical grand rounds on influenza vaccination, sit up and say, wow, I didn't learn that in medical school. And that's because we've only learned it. Here's the story in brief. We get influenza, an acute infection. The body mounts an inflammatory response to fight off the virus and we get over the virus. However, the inflammatory response will continue for another two to four weeks after we recover. You know, that's why a lot of people tell us, I'm still feeling punky after influenza two weeks later. Now, that inflammatory response will, in particular, 
involve our blood vessels, especially the blood vessels to the heart and to the brain. There is an increased risk, hear me now, an increased risk of heart attacks and strokes during the month after influenza. If you needed another reason for flu vaccine, prevents heart attacks and strokes, hey, there it is. So obviously in this time of COVID and the COVID vaccines being developed, there's been a lot of act, a lot of increased discussion about vaccine hesitancy. How do you think we should be thinking about vaccine hesitancy in the context of getting people vaccinated for flu? Could it have a negative impact? How should we be making sure that vaccine hesitancy that's wor- focused on COVID doesn't impact the routine vaccines we all believe are so important, like influenza? Yeah, that's a very serious question, Phyllis, and uh, I agree with you, and many of my colleagues I know agree with you, that there has been an erosion of trust uh, regarding vaccines, particularly in the recent environment. The best thing that I can do is go forward and, based on the science, give my best information so I could try to be not only persuasive but reassuring that this is a very good thing to do for you and your family and your community. And then I, I, I just like to remind people that when they're listening, listen, listen to the medical leadership. Listen to your doctor. Listen to your local health department director. Listen to the national medical leaders. Listen carefully. Thank you, Bill. I think that's great advice. Look at the science, listen to the healthcare professionals that you know and trust, and try to understand these vaccines and why they're important for you and your family and your health. Thank you so much, Bill, for your clear communication, your commitment to this space, your commitment to patients, uh, and making sure that we're all protected against vaccine-preventable diseases, particularly one as serious, potentially as serious as influenza as we go into the flu season. Phyllis, it's been just wonderful and a pleasure to be with you. And uh, please stay safe. And remember, when in doubt, vaccinate. (laughs) Thank you, Bill. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit imbio.org. In our next episode, we're going to shine a light on the emerging field of synthetic biology and its boundless potential to change our world for the better. Dr. Michelle will be back next week to interview a fascinating biotech entrepreneur who runs the first unicorn in the SynBio space. That's next Monday on I Am Bio.